I'm Beth Bennett. And I'm Benita Lee. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, August 1st, 2023. Coming up, we hear from author Tony Hiss about his book, Rescuing the Planet, Protecting Half the Land to Heal the Earth. The book is a call to action for people who want to help protect dwindling species by increasing biodiversity everywhere, including in cities. Then, Howiner speaks with Creighton Hoffeditz, the Director of Permaculture and Perennials at Denver Urban Gardens. Hoffeditz is not only turning empty Denver lots into forests that welcome biodiversity, but is also teaching people how to grow food there. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Here's Beth Bennett with a story about how some especially sensitive noses might be more accurate at detecting COVID than the gold standard tests done at medical labs. Although the federal government declared the COVID public health emergency over in mid-May, once again, cases are slowly rising. But now, public testing sites are closed, and many people assume they are safe and aren't home testing either. The upshot, we have no idea how many cases there actually are. But what if there were a simple, cheap, effective, fast, and available way to test for the virus? Turns out, there is. In a recent review published last month in the Journal of Osteopathic Medicine, the safety, effectiveness, and practicality of utilizing trained scent dogs in clinical and public situations for COVID-19 screening were assessed. Specifically, 29 peer-reviewed studies that looked at the ability of trained scent dogs to detect the virus were compared with results of PCR and antigen testing methods. Based on this literature review, the authors found that in 92% of the studies, the sensitivity of the dog sniffers exceeded 80%. Further, 84% of the studies reported specificities above 90%. Before I go on, let me define these terms as they are used in science. Sensitivity is the percentage of true positives detective. In other words, 90% sensitivity means 90% of the samples the dogs identified as positive were in fact positive for the virus. On the other hand, specificity is the percentage of true negatives, or 90% specificity means 90% of the samples sniffed out as not carrying virus truly were negative. Okay, so back to the review. Some of the highlights of the studies are, first, many sources can be sampled, including breath, saliva, tracheous secretions, and urine, as well as face masks and even articles of clothing. Second, trained COVID-19 scent dogs can detect presymptomatic and asymptomatic individuals. Third, scent dogs can detect new SARS-CoV-2 variants and long COVID-19 and fourth, scent dogs can distinguish between SARS-CoV-2 infections and other novel respiratory viruses. These results showcase the amazing ability of dogs both to detect minute amounts of a desired compound, which in the case of COVID infection is currently unknown as they are not detecting the virus, but also the seemingly endless capacity of dogs to be trained to answer questions for us based on smells. In the studies reviewed here, scent dogs were as good or better as PCR and or the antigen test. Further, they were faster, giving a result in seconds to minutes, non-invasive and accurate in public settings. 
For How on Earth, I'm Beth Bennett. Tony Hiss is the author of over a dozen books, including his latest, Rescuing the Planet, Protecting Half the Land to Heal the Earth, published by Vintage. Hiss was a staff writer at The New Yorker for about 30 years, then a visiting scholar at New York University for 25 years. Hiss spoke with How on Earth about the heartbreaking truth that we are rapidly losing species on Earth because of climate change. At the same time, Hiss joyfully champions grassroots efforts to create spaces that invite biodiversity wherever and whenever the opportunities present themselves. And now, author Tony Hiss. What led you to write Rescuing the Planet? Well, I've been feeling for some years the sadness of losing so many wonderful animals. We've had to coin a new word, a sad new word, endlein, meaning the very last of its species. What, what we do know is that something like a million species of plants and animals are at risk of extinction in the next few decades. Even those whose existence is not yet threatened, the numbers are way down, the abundance is gone. Uh, last December, there was a meeting in Montreal, Canada, 188 countries decided that we need to protect something like 30% of the planet, the land and the water by the year 2030, in order to keep all that biodiversity alive. We've protected maybe 15% of the land here in the U.S. There's only six and a half years of the 20s left. So it gets more and more urgent, urgent, urgent. In your book, you talk about how cities can help people reach a goal of protecting up to 50% of the planet's biodiversity by 2050. Can you please go into detail about this? Yes, I think cities are a critical part of it. It's within this century that more than half of humanity lives in a city for the first time. And by the middle of the century, it's, it looks like maybe two-thirds or more of nine and a half billion people will be living in cities. A study of something like 110 U.S. cities showed that 84% of city parkland is in this natural area. Amalgamated from all those cities, it's something like 1.7 million acres of land, which is almost as big as Yellowstone Park. So there's lots of things there to work on that are exciting. And city people can take all kinds of actions. And of course, that's been one of the things about cities is we sort of thought we tamed nature. We kept nature at bay. We warded it off. That was our great accomplishment. And not realizing that, in fact, the biodiversity has continued. Uh, it's still there. Cities tend to exist on places that had a lot of natural biodiversity. That's what attracted with settlers in the first place. So how can creating biodiversity in cities help mitigate the effects of climate change? The plants in a city sequester a lot of carbon themselves. And by planting shade trees, you can reduce the so-called urban heat island effect in the summertime by several degrees in the daytime and up to 20 degrees at nighttime. And of course, that makes it also an environmental justice concern because street trees tend to be in the wealthier neighborhoods. But everyone needs them. And at the same time, cities, if they welcome rainwater and floodwaters, can do a lot to accommodate water. And that's a, a Chinese architect has invented what he calls sponge city. His idea actually was derived from what Chinese peasants have done for thousands and thousands of years. But the third aspect to it is just that we need frequent contact with rain spaces, whoever we are. 
And that's something that goes back to the 1980s. An amazing American geographer named Roger Ulrich did a study in which he showed that if you were in a hospital bed recovering from an operation, but look out the window and see a natural setting, you actually didn't need as much painkiller while you were healing, and you actually got better quicker. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Tony Hiss, author of Rescuing the Planet, Protecting Half the Land to Heal the Earth. In this segment, Hiss gives examples of how people are stepping up to increase biodiversity in cities. And now, back to the interview. I wanted to go back to your example of sponge cities. Can you go into detail about what that looks like? The Chinese architect who was the genius behind this, whose name is Yu Kongjian, his catchphrase is make friends with water, welcome it as it reaches the city. Using concrete, he says, to manage a flood is like drinking poison to quench your thirst. You want natural areas both to receive the water and then as it begins to leave, you want natural areas meandering through the city to slow its progress down. That's the way you gentle it. The concrete culverts we use just accelerate its progress. Also, as it's slowed in its travel, it is cleansing the water and providing habitat for all kinds of other creatures. So the Chinese goal is now that 80% of their cities will at least have some sponge applications by 2030. And they're already spending something like $57 billion on 30 cities. And they may spend something like another $1.5 trillion. Another part of slowing the water down and welcoming the water is finding streams that were buried in cities up to 100 years ago and bringing them back into our world. Daylighting, it's called daylighting rivers and streams. They've done some of that north of New York City and the town of Yonkers on the Hudson. That's really fascinating. Can you please describe how they went about doing that? Well, old maps showed where the water had been flowing. Someone had the idea that it could be restored and that, in fact, it would be cost beneficial to the city because it would attract so much attention. So you said you're in New York. Have you seen anything in recent years that is an example of this? Yes, indeed. The Bronx River up in the borough of the Bronx was this neglected stream. It was heavily polluted and clogged up with shopping carts and the usual urban castaways. And there, a local group beginning oh, over 20 years ago just thought, we don't want to live next to something nasty. And they start hauling the garbage out and thinking about how to replant it. And, and now they've done such a good job that a few years ago, for the first time in 200 years, a beaver returned to that river. So that was just people responding to their own neighborhood conditions, saying, we're better than this. This place is better than that. Let's get to work. And they did it all by themselves. Now, of course, the city is happy to welcome it. But that's what I mean by just things sort of bubbling up spontaneously, people responding to the situation and finding a way to do something about it. So that's what gives me hope. How do you think people can shift their ways of existing to better accommodate other animals? So what we really need now is to come up with something that I call all species design. A lot of wonderful ideas to get us off of fossil fuels are still stuck at the hind end in old-fashioned ways of doing things. So if suddenly we need a lot of rare earths for the new batteries, well, unless we reinvent mining, that's going to do the same kind of damage that mining iron ore did in the Industrial Revolution. One of the things we're learning is that you know, the species uh, around us are more extraordinary than we for a long time, we're giving them credit for being. 
We know, for instance, that elephants are very warm hearted, and we know that spiders can dream. Octopuses can recognize a human face. Just last summer, a German zoologist wrote a book about bees, in which he showed that bees, which have a brain the size of a poppy seed, have rich inner lives. So it's not just that we're surrounded by all these lies, but we're surrounded by all this awareness, which is a new thought. But it does mean that there really is no such thing as vacant land or an empty lot. It may not have human uses, but it's got all kinds of life teeming in there. So if we're going to add our kinds of uses to it, let's do it in a way that doesn't just displace or disenfranchise the other inhabitants. Is there anything you'd like to add? Well, I think we're in a process of sort of rethinking and refeeling where we are. The biosphere, which is the little layer of life around the planet, is really extraordinarily ancient. It goes back so close to the beginning of the planet itself, and it seems immense. But it turns out it's really very thin. As someone pointed out, if that was spread horizontally on ground, you could drive across it easily in 20 minutes. So we're just getting used to the idea that that in addition to the resilience and the antiquity and the abundance of the biosphere, there's this built-in vulnerability. So that's sobering, but it also gives us no strength because we not only know what's at stake. So in fact, it's a very exciting moment to be alive because this is the generation that really has a chance to make a difference. Winston Churchill supposedly said, Americans always do the right thing after they've tried everything else. And, and sort of that's the situation we're in. We've tried everything else. It's time to do the right thing. Thank you so much, Tony, for taking the time to talk with me about your book and what people are doing to make a change. Oh, you're so welcome. And it's such a pleasure talking to you. That was Tony Hiss, author of Rescuing the Planet, Protecting Half the Land to Heal the Earth, published by Vintage. Rita Nahafadith is the Director of Permaculture and Perennials for the long-running nonprofit Denver Urban Gardens, which gives residents the space and skills to grow their own fresh vegetables and fruits. Benita Lee spoke with Hafaditz about how food forest initiative fits into the science of agroforestry and how developing food forests in cities could eventually lead to self-sustainable food systems within urban neighborhoods. How did you come to practice urban agriculture? Did you study agriculture in school? Yeah, I went to school for theater, actually. Um, I did theater and music in college, and that was always what I thought I was going to do for my career. I made the switch in my mid-20s. I guess I felt a great urgency to get involved in a hands-on and on-the-ground way with creating more resilient communities and working with land. Yeah, so I've been doing it about 12 years now, I suppose. But I've always found myself very drawn to urban areas and the kind of interesting overlap of social and physical systems that are presented in a city. And then it all kind of came together a couple of years ago with this new program at Denver Urban Gardens. Can you please define agroforestry and talk about the area that you're specifically working in? I think of agroforestry as a really big umbrella term that's really at its heart about using trees, but also woody perennials of all kinds in agriculture. And agroforestry 
is about really, I think, trying to do multiple things at once, create a forest that also has agricultural yields and to do it at a scale that can actually maybe replace many of the annual agriculture yields that exist. So if we're thinking about our starches and proteins, some of these big staple foods, many of them can also be produced by trees. So if we can start to bring those things together, it offers a more regenerative and more powerful way to produce what we need while also gaining a bunch of other ecosystem benefits. There's a lot of different subheadings within that. Food forestry is a kind of agroforestry. Can you talk about how you create a food forest? Yes. Our, our food forests have kind of a, a sweet spot of scale and then also a sweet spot of location. We're often working at a scale between 2,000 and 8,000 square feet. So really about the size of a, of a city lot, maybe a couple city lots. But crucially, they are also all public access. They're not fenced. We're always trying to find places that are adjacent to good walking paths that maybe tend to be at a nexus of a community. So we're planting anywhere between 10 and 25 to 30 trees at any particular site. But then along with that, we're probably planting double that number of companion plants and berry bushes and smaller shrubs, working at many different layers, but also working in time. So finding stuff that's going to fruit right away in the next couple of years and things that will take a lot longer to fruit. And a lot of times what we're looking for is for people to be able to come in and see, oh, this is growing with this, and this is the technique here. And, oh, that's really delicious. And I wonder if I could do this in my own yard, in my own space. So providing these gathering places and also sources of inspiration and learning, as well as eventually significant amounts of food. But I wouldn't say that any of our food forests are endeavoring to, say, replace the fruit intake of a whole neighborhood. You're listening to How on Earth. We're speaking with Creighton Hoffeditz. Director of Permaculture and Perennials for Denver Urban Gardens. In this next segment, Hafeditz talks about how he brings a degraded city lot back to life and what his ideal future city would look like in terms of agriculture. Have you ever had to revitalize a city lot where everything was pretty much dead? Yeah. So those are my favorite spots. That's actually the spots that I looked for are places that, that are not very ecologically activated or they maybe they've been degraded or underutilized. I also look for slopes and weird shaped lots and weird things that people aren't going to make into anything else. And like, well, this isn't good for housing or it's not good for a garden, but we can put all kinds of different perennials in this space because they have so many advantages. Trees and perennials amend the soil year after year just by being there. And they don't need to have the soil as prepared uh, ahead of time as annuals do. They can handle slopes, they can handle more drought, they can handle more flooding in, in broad terms. There are lots of exceptions to that. But the main thing that we're trying to do that I, I try to do in, in designing these spaces is to pay attention to the landform, to the water flow. If you're on a slope, you want to create something that's going to trap that water, create some terracing or landform berms, swales, things that are going to kind of harvest some water that are going to slow down erosion and create pockets for life to thrive. That could be an issue on sloped land is that it's just washing off and there's no, it's not a lot of roots to, to carry it. So if you can change the landform, you change the pattern of the site. And then we work with local arborists to get all kinds of wood chips. That's our primary fertility pump or a way of adding 
fertility to a site. And then we can also, by putting particular uh, combinations of plants together, we can be building soil fertility in the, in the short term and preparing it for the long term. So using nitrogen fixing species like buffalo berry, Siberian pea shrub, false indigo, these different species that will grow quickly and amend the soil on their own. Similarly, I think one of the bigger issues that we will run up against is compaction. Maybe it was building before and now it's an empty lot, but also maybe it's been driven over or it was, you know, it's just packed road base. So we will do a little bit of manual forking and alleviating compaction, but largely we want the plants to do that. We want to use biological methods whenever we can. So that's getting really aggressive plants, things with good rootstocks. When you're talking about fruit trees that are, are grafted to rootstocks that are going to anchor well in hard soil and actually do that work for us over time, instead of trying to think like we have to have everything perfect and then plant. So I'm curious about water. It sounds like you try to design so that whatever rainwater comes, it's captured and slowed down for the plants. But do you have to irrigate these sites? Yes, absolutely. All of our sites are irrigated. So there's just pipes and spigots and, and, and hoses. And so they're hand watered five gallons of water per tree once a week during the growing season. We could do a dryland system, but there's a difference between an establishment and maintaining. And so I can develop all of the cool water harvesting earthworks that I want, but if we plant our trees and then we get a really dry May, it doesn't matter. Like, if, you know, even if the, if the systems are there to accumulate more water, if you don't get water right at the beginning, you're sunk. These trees and food forests take less water per square foot than grass or an annual vegetable garden. They're quite water efficient. It's on the order of 70 or $80 a year for even a pretty large food forest, you know, 20 to 25 trees. And once you go through the first three or four years of establishment, if you have some other passive water harvesting, in most cases, those trees are going to be fine. And so I think there's, there's virtue in not being too purist about water use and the idea of water scarcity. I think that producing more food from these sites in the middle of the city, probably in the aggregate saves a lot more water than if you're having to ship in more food from, from outside. Now we should use a lot less for municipal uses, but I think that maybe because of the idea of grass and just the messaging around water in the West, people think about these trees as water hogs when really it could be the opposite because as they get more established too, their roots are going farther and deeper. They're accessing more groundwater. They're able to hold over for much longer periods of drought. So you're sort of investing by irrigating it. What is your ideal city of the future? Man, my ideal city of the future, I, I think it's, it's, it's fundamentally one that operates more on a neighborhood scale than a city scale. Even if there is a fuller city, you think about downtown as the center of it all, when neighborhoods should be able to provide for most of their own needs. What about community greenhouses? Where you say, well, for every two square blocks, you've got a big greenhouse that's going to provide all of the tropical spices they can grow in there. And then we don't have to import those. And then every two square blocks, we've got a food forest that has got all the fruit that we need for the year. And most food being grown within the city confines. This has been proven in places like Cuba during the special period in Havana, producing you know, 80% of their fruits and vegetables 
I think we could be really smart about what things a city does well, and then what things does the countryside do well, and and we could have a better interchange between them. My ideal city of the future is one that provides for itself instead of robbing other areas to feed itself. Wow. That's a beautiful vision. It almost sounds bucolic. Yeah. yeah. The other thing that ties in a little bit is for now, our tree keepers, as well as our garden leaders under Doug, are volunteer. Uh, we're also, though, trying to find um, funding, both at the private level and municipal level, to start paying these folks who work in situations like that. Because I think when you think about green infrastructure and green livelihoods and all these buzzwords that get thrown around, you know, we have a lot of these sites that could be places for people to learn that stuff and to be providing real community benefits. So if you are managing a site, it's the size of a city lot and it's producing 3,000 pounds of fruit in a year, it gets given away to some neighbors and food pantries. That's a public benefit that should be funded by the public to make these spaces pathways for people to, to learn the skills that we're really going to need over the next 50, 100 years. Thank you so much, Creighton, for taking the time to talk with me. Awesome. Thank Thanks so much, Vinny. That was Creighton Hoffeditz, the Director of Permaculture and Perennials for the Denver Urban Gardens, talking about how their food forest initiative designs gathering places where city residents can practice growing produce sustainably and create environments that welcome biodiversity. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced and engineered by Benita Lee and Shannon Young. Additional contributions by Beth Bennett and Alexis Kenyon. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from March 4th Marching Band and Vitamin String Quartet. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Benita Lee. And I'm Beth Bennett. Andean Collective operates off of a theory of change, and that theory of change is rooted in the self-determination of Indigenous peoples. Therefore, when we work with funders and foundations, we ask them to invest in our theory of change. We don't make changes to our theory of change to appease others because we know that our theory of change is rooted in the systems in place that we want to see propelled forward to help support our communities in the liberation and the rematriation of what we want to see happen. For more from Talia Carol Kachimuel, as well as four people from the National Center for Interpretation and their September virtual conference on environmental justice, tune into Hemispheres tonight at 6 p.m. on KGNU. Support comes from Myers Heating and Air Conditioning, serving Metro Boulder and the surrounding areas for over 57 years. Myers provides American Standard products, HVAC, and indoor air quality design services. More information at MyersHeatingAC.com. Support comes from Hofgard and Associates, providing estate, insurance, business planning, and probate administration services. More information can be found at HofgardLaw.com. 
That's H-O-F-G-A-R-D law.com. KGNU FM 88.5 Boulder, KGNU 1390 Denver. Welcome to another talk from the Alan Watts radio series number two on Eastern thought in the modern world. This is part one of a two-part program in which Alan Watts introduces the philosophies of Asia. It's called The Relevance of Oriental Philosophy, part one. Here's Alan Watts. When I was a small boy, I used to haunt that section of London around the British Museum. And one day I came across a shop which had a notice over the window which said, Philosophical Instruments. Even as a boy, I knew something about philosophy, but I couldn't imagine what philosophical instruments could be. So I went up to the window, and there displayed were chronometers, slide rules, scales, and all kinds of what we would now call scientific instruments. Because science used to be called natural philosophy. Because, as Aristotle says, the beginning of philosophy is wonder. Philosophy is man's expression of curiosity about everything, his attempt to make sense of the world primarily through his intellect. That is to say, his faculty for thinking. And thinking, of course, is a word used in extremely many ways and is a very vague word for most people. But I use the word thinking now and hereafter, you must understand this, in a very precise way. By thinking, as distinct from feeling or emoting or sensing, I mean the manipulation of symbols, whether they be words, whether they be numbers, or whether they be other such signs as, say, triangles, squares, circles, astrological signs, or whatever. These are symbols. Sometimes a symbol is a little bit more concrete and less abstract than that, as when you get a mythological symbol, like a dragon. But all these things are symbols, and the manipulation of symbols to represent events going on in the real world is what I call thinking. So philosophy in the Western sense means generally an exercise of the intellect, and the manipulation of symbols is very largely, until we come to poetry and music, an exercise of the intellect. But it does sometimes go beyond that, as in these specific cases of poetry and music. But what philosophy has become today in the academic world is something extremely restricted. Philosophy, by and large, in the academic world of both the United States and England, Germany, France to some extent, is falling into two other disciplines, mathematical logic on the one hand and linguistics on the other. And uh, the departments of philosophy throughout the academic world have gone, have bent over backwards to be as scientific as possible. As William Earle, who was professor of philosophy at Northwestern University, said in an essay called Notes on the Death of a Culture, that an academic philosopher today must, above all things, avoid being edifying. He must never stoop to lying awake at nights, considering problems of the nature of the universe and the destiny of man, 
because these have largely been dismissed as metaphysical or meaningless questions. So 